0: Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Uh, we're currently preaching through a sermon series on the topic of revival, as Carlos said. Our, our subtitle for this series is Ordinary Grace in Extraordinary Measure. Okay? So what does that mean? What does Ordinary Grace in Extraordinary Measure mean? I think it means we continue to do everything the Bible has always called us to do, and yet God works through us in such a way that it makes these ordinary things uncommonly fruitful. Right? We cannot manufacture a revival. We, th- there's no formula for it. We've been over that. In fact, I, I'm not even sure that we would be aware of it as it was beginning, Right? because revival looks like Christians being Christians. We gather here on Sundays. We Uh, Serve one another in community. We multiply parishes. We meditate on scripture. We pray unceasingly. We give of our finances. And God uses these things. Um, He takes these small offerings and He changes us and He changes the church and He changes the world. Who here has read The Lord of the Rings or seen the movies? More hands for the movies? Gotcha. All right, so it's one of the best-selling novels ever written. And throughout this epic story, Tolkien, the author, he weaves a dramatic theme. It's this. In the end, humility and weakness will triumph over pride and strength. Or in the Bible's terms, power is made perfect in weakness. So in, in the story, Gandalf is the leader of the Fellowship of the Ring, a ragtag, diverse group sent on a dangerous mission to toss the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom. And despite facing great evil, Gandalf does not place his hope, he does not place his faith in the strength of kings and their kingdoms. Gandalf places his faith and his hope in a frail, humble, childlike creature named Frodo. At one point in the story, a powerful man accused Gandalf of being a coward. But Gandalf was old and wise. He had had learned what was important and what was not. He knew um, that everything was going to culminate in one final battle, and so the tiny insults of a mere mortal could not shake his resolve. He had learned patience and long-suffering. He knew that he would suffer. He knew that he might even die. But his hope in a future kingdom, a kingdom with no more evil, guided him every step of the way. And that's what our sermon is about today, perspective, eternal perspective. In 2 Corinthians 4, which Carlos just read for us, the Apostle Paul is defending his ministry and leadership. Although Paul had personally planted the church in Corinth, the Corinthians had begun to question his authority. See, Paul was weak, he suffered greatly, and he really wasn't that great of a public speaker. And so, over the years, the Corinthian church was exposed to much more powerful, much more gifted leaders. In a sense, they were all podcasting their favorite preachers and getting really discontent with Paul's shortcomings. There's nothing new under the sun. But Paul doesn't defend his ministry in the way you might expect. He doesn't get defensive or insecure. In fact, he he actually agrees with some of the Corinthian critiques. He says, I'm just a jar of clay. I'm ordinary, everyday, unimpressive. Left to myself, I am nothing special, but the treasure inside me is priceless. Let's read verses 7 to 11. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. First of all, what is this treasure? What treasure does Paul carry within himself? When we survey the broader context of these verses, I I think the treasure, Paul's treasure, was the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's treasure was the gospel and the glory of God. The gospel and the glory of God. Some some background information, real quick. The Old Testament, the portion of the Bible written before Jesus came on the scene, the Old Testament gave a detailed set of instructions to the nation of Israel. And according to those instructions, whenever a jar of clay became ritually unclean, it had to be broken. Whenever a jar of clay became ritually unclean, it had to be broken. But Paul and the other apostles were jars of clay that could never be broken. They could be afflicted, but not crushed. They could be struck down, but not destroyed. They could be cracked, but never broken. We'll come back to this idea in a bit, but the Holy Spirit dwells within us, which means, which means Christians have the glory of Jesus, divine glory stored within our mortal bodies, we don't just ask Jesus into our hearts. We ask Jesus into every fiber of our being. We ask him into our hearts and our minds and our bodies and our souls. And then we become new creatures. We become glory containers. And So we need to drive out the idea that, that when a Christian is saved, what is saved is merely a spirit or a ghost. No, our, our bodies are saved too. They're still subject to death and decay, but the truth is that we're being transformed from the inside out. There's glory within us, and it's growing more and more glorious day by day. How? Well, we are jars of clay too. And and what happens when a jar of clay is cracked? Its contents begin to seep out. And so when we when we suffer through pain and affliction by faith, the glory of God spills out for everyone to see. And when a brother or sister cracks and the community comes running to share that burden, we all get to see glory spilling out. So we can get really good at game nights. And we can go on retreats together. and We can laugh together and eat together and take the kids to the park We can get really good at Bible study. But the true test of Christian community is suffering. If we fail to demonstrate our togetherness in the midst of suffering, we have community in name only. Because our neighbors can find shallow community almost anywhere. But they should have to look to the church for a group of people who demonstrate their togetherness for better or for worse. That's why meal trains are so beautiful. They're simple, but they're beautiful. It's also why evangelism is most effective when the church is persecuted. As Paul says in chapter 4, verse 15, he suffers so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So When we face pain and suffering, the pain and suffering of life together, we get grace, and God gets glory. Jesus was abandoned in his suffering. He lost his community. That should not be true of us. Now, that, that doesn't mean we have to suffer. We have to suffer in order to grow. If we jump back to 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are told that we are being transformed into the glory of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. We get to participate with God as he transforms each and every one of us. Again, this doesn't just happen when we get really good at Bible study in our parishes. This This isn't only for when we finally get real and vulnerable with one another. We get this as we live the Christian life together. And the Christian life is 99% ordinary. So we get to taste and see the glory of the life of Christ in every small act of service, in every shared meal, in every song that we sing, in every 10-second prayer that we pray for one another, in every side hug in the foyer. We get to taste and see the glory of the life of Christ. Suffering only amplifies what's true for us every day, all right? So Paul says in verse 16, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Eternal perspective. That's what we need. We need a clear vision of that future day when all of God's children bear an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Or as Paul writes elsewhere, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. we will one day be filled with a type of divine glory that even the Bible cannot put into words. It's astonishing. And when we truly learn to appreciate and anticipate that glorious future, the light momentary afflictions of this life are put into perspective. Although our bodies get old and sick and eventually die, We are being renewed on the inside every single day. Our temporary afflictions are preparing us for something that's so much better, it's not even worth attempting to draw a comparison. What makes that possible? In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we are told that the Lord God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. In other words, God was a potter and Adam was a jar of clay. In fact, in in Romans chapter 9, explicitly refers to God as a potter and to mankind as clay. God filled Adam with treasure, with glory. Adam was made in the image of God. But Adam failed, and he lost that treasure, and the jar was broken. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus came to earth. Jesus Christ comes to earth and like every other human being, Jesus was formed by God from the dust of the ground. He was a jar of clay, except he was a jar of clay filled with that glory, filled with that treasure. He was a perfect jar of clay, a flawless and clean jar of clay, and yet he came to earth to be broken. He was not only afflicted, he was crushed. He was not only perplexed, he was driven to despair. He was not only persecuted, he was forsaken. He was not only struck down, he was destroyed. He was a perfect jar of clay, but he willingly emptied himself of glory in order to fill himself with our sin. He became unclean and he was broken to pieces. That's the Christian gospel. Jesus was emptied of glory, filled with our sin, and broken to pieces. And having been put back together, having been resurrected, he now works to empty us of sin and fill us with glory. The gospel says that glory seeps out through humility, through the mangled body of Jesus laying down his life for his friends. If that's glorious, our culture has the wrong definition of glory. Glory through humility means that glory shines in our weaknesses and frailties. It means there's glory in being dependent. It means we can find glory back here in the baby room. It means there's glory in wrinkles and white hair. Again, we're waiting and preparing to carry an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. How? By, by keeping our eyes fixed on eternal things, by maintaining an eternal perspective. Like Gandalf, we're learning to make every tiny decision in light of that greater story. We are learning to place our steadfast hope in a glorious future. So what does this change for us? How does an eternal perspective impact our daily lives? Well, first of all, I I think it's important to realize that Paul is not minimizing our suffering. He's not advocating for stoicism or indifference. He doesn't want us to ignore our pain. In fact, if we were to keep reading through the book of 2 Corinthians, we'd come to chapter 11, where Paul, Paul lays out a list of his own sufferings. Let me paraphrase that for us. I have faced exhaustion, imprisonment, and beatings. I have often been near death. On five different occasions, I've received 39 lashes. On three different occasions, I was beaten with rods. On one occasion, I was stoned. I've been shipwrecked three times, adrift at sea for days. I've faced danger from robbers, danger from Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, and danger in the wilderness. I've faced toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, and exposure. And on top of all that, I'm anxious daily for the holiness and faithfulness of the churches that I've planted. Who is weak if I'm not weak? So Paul doesn't ignore his pain. The Bible never teaches us to pretend like pain is painless. The Bible teaches us that even in the most painful of circumstances, um, those are nothing compared to what will be revealed in us in eternity. What is even the longest life compared to everlasting life? What are temporary pleasures compared with eternal riches? Right? That's your life. That is your life compared to eternity. And that's not sad or depressing. This passage means that's really good news. Eternal perspective strips anxiety of its power. After all, despair is only for people who can see the end with certainty. Hopeful people, people filled with hope, Do not despair. An eternal perspective gives us nothing if not hope. God's plan for the future is better than yours. That's kind of an obvious statement for Christians, but it's something that we really struggle to believe. Eternal perspective subdues pain and sickness. Again, The light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. When we look to the things that are unseen, the eternal things, we begin to see our pain and our sickness as light and momentary. Eternal perspective turns death into something meaningful. Our society, our our modern society, doesn't deny the reality of death. Because you can't, you can't really. We do deny that death can serve much of any purpose. But that's not true for us. Christians can see that our mortality is a means through which God blesses us and everyone around us. And when we face death in faith, that is a powerful way to proclaim the gospel to the people around us. Eternal perspective means we don't have to complain as much. Grumbling, complaining in light of eternity is like whining on the way to Disney World because your parents won't let you have a gumball at the gas station. Really. God has promised an eternal weight of glory and yet we're grasping for transient glory. This is also why money is so dangerous. Having lots of stuff blinds us to what's eternal. When we have a lot of stuff, our perspective gets shifted to the affairs of this world. We've got to take care of our stuff. Eternal perspective means we pray with greater fervency and serve with greater urgency. This life is fleeting, but the life to come is eternal. And so when we pray... When we serve one another, we're getting a jumpstart on relationships that we're going to be cultivating for eternity. Isn't that amazing? What if we began to see one another as immortal glory bearers? How would that change the way we relate to one another? And so this future glory is worthy of our desire. It is worthy of your desire. This hope is a gift. But it's a a gift you have to unwrap and actually use. We have have to let everything we see and feel and think and do be shaped by this hope, this eternal hope. Let's look ahead to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. This is how we will conclude For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. So here we see Paul shifting the metaphor from a jar of clay to a tent. Eternal perspective reminds us that we live in a tent compared to the house that's coming. This is first of all a reference to the tabernacle, which was a tent, and to the temple, which was a permanent structure. But we're going to go with the metaphor for just a bit. Some of you enjoy camping, right? It's, it's strange, but okay. Uh, here's the thing you probably wouldn't be willing to deal with the discomfort of camping if you thought that it was permanent, right? You'll be heading home in a day or two. You're going to you're gonna get to take a shower, which means you can deal with the discomfort of camping for a while. And that's what life is like for the Christian. We can truly enjoy the camping experience because we know we'll soon be home. Eternal perspective is understanding that the light momentary afflictions of life are temporary. Now, what does this have to do with revival? Think about it. If God gave us the grace to gain and maintain this type of eternal perspective, we would really struggle to describe what began to take place in our homes and neighborhoods and schools and workplaces. We would have to call that a revival. There would be no other word for that. So even though Paul was was weak and humble, a jar of clay. God used him powerfully. Paul was self-aware about his shortcomings. He was also self-aware about the glory within. He knew the glory within. He knew the glory that was coming, and God used him powerfully. But Paul was only walking in the footsteps of Christ, who came to earth humbly, quietly, poverty, to walk a path towards suffering and death. Jesus had an eternal perspective, and and we all know God used him powerfully. So if you're a child in here today, it should be encouraging to, to realize that at one point, Jesus was the same age as you are now. God has a purpose for children, too. It's a grand purpose. Frodo was small. He wasn't a king or a warrior. He wasn't the strongest or the smartest. He was weak and he was humble. But the kingdom that was coming belonged to him as much as anybody. So let's follow Frodo as Frodo follows Gandalf or let's follow Paul as Paul follows Jesus. It's the path of weakness and humility, but it, it really is the path to glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, a, another ordinary Sunday, to gather with the saints, to be encouraged by one another, to sing together, to hear from your word, to come to your table and break bread. Um, God, I I do pray that that by your spirit, you would give us grace to have this type of eternal perspective. We want to care most about what's to come because what's to come is so much better than anything we could taste here. Give us faith to see that and to live into that. Thank you for, for your presence here. We, we ask for your continued presence as we go to our homes. Um, be with us this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.